the things about which they make confident assertions. Now I want you to jump on down in the, in the chapter to verse 18, last paragraph in the chapter. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good war. You may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, in order that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we just come before you now. Lord, we are presented with a passage as we are walking through your letter to us, your church, your bride, your chosen people. We encounter a passage that is not popular and is certainly not widely taught or expounded upon. Father, we are basically told here in the text before us this morning that there are people within the church that need to be silenced. Father, we know that you provide this instruction to us because you care so deeply for us. Father, I pray that as we encounter your word this morning, we would recognize the solemn responsibility that you have placed upon your people, this duty, this charge that you have given to us, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be faithful to keeping that charge. But Lord, I fear, I fear, God, that as a church striving to be faithful to you in regards to what these verses are saying, I fear, Lord, we become perhaps legalistic. I worry, Lord, that we might be listening for the slightest hint of inaccuracy or imprecision and that we will be quick to condemn rather than being quick to listen and even slow to speak. Lord, we do want to be faithful to you. We do want to safeguard the gospel. We do want to make sure that those individuals who do not truly honor you with their teaching are indeed silenced. But Father, help us to be a people that lean first and foremost on your word and that respond to all with grace as you have dealt with us. We pray you would help us to learn that truth this morning from your word. And it is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Do you know, church, that you are at war? Are you aware of the fact that we all are engaged in a spiritual conflict that rages with incredible violence and incredible, incredible hatred all around us. You know, the only thing worse than being at war is being at war and not knowing you are at war. I can't think of a worse situation than that. On December 7th, 1941, the nation of Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor, a naval base located in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The day after, on December the 8th, 
President Roosevelt addressed Congress asking for a declaration of war. What is interesting is at the end of his speech, he asked that Congress would declare a state of war as having existed from the moment that the first Japanese bomb fell on Pearl Harbor. He wasn't asking for them to declare war then on December 8th, but to have recognized a state of war that existed from the moment that the first bombs dropped on December 7th. But perhaps the part of his speech which is remembered even now to this day is that opening line, yesterday on December 7th, a date which will live in infamy. The word infamy hadn't existed until that point. It was a turn of expression that Roosevelt coined to help characterize the dastardly nature of the attacks that were launched against the United States. Listen to what he says, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace within the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, a Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message, And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. The nation of Japan was deceiving the Americans into believing that they were still at peace all while they were weeks in advance, months in advance indeed, planning to destroy their naval forces at Pearl Harbor. I am reminded from the psalm that says, Be wary of your friend, for though his words are as smooth as butter, war is in his heart. A prophecy from the psalms describing Judas, the one who would eventually betray Jesus. This is the nature of satanic warfare. Our enemy wants nothing more than to seduce all of us into believing that we are at peace, that there is no fighting, there is no conflict, that there is nothing to be wary of, no danger to be alerted to. Our enemy does not fight fair. Why would we accept his suggestion that there is no fight to be had? Jesus refers to Satan as the father of lies. He says he was a liar from the beginning, for he has nothing to do with the truth, for he is a liar, the father of lies. And then Jesus makes a statement, murder was in his heart. Paul, writing to Timothy here in 1 Timothy, makes this statement. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. There are two terms used here in this passage in which Paul is trying to alert Timothy to something which I pray you are alerted to this morning, that we are all involved in a great spiritual conflict. 
The first word that I want to draw your attention to, he says here in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy. We've talked about this before when we preached several weeks ago from verses 3 and following. The word charge is a military term. It could also be translated duty. It's an order. It's a command. It's something that is given from a higher-ranking officer to a lower-ranking officer. It is not something that you're free to disregard. It's not a mere suggestion. It is an order, and it is given with the expressed understanding that lives hang in the balance. You have a duty to do. You have a charge to fulfill. You have an obligation to carry. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I am entrusting this responsibility, this duty, this command to you. This is military terminology. But in case we were to quibble over the meaning of the word charge or duty, look a little bit further. He says that by them, this is the tail end of verse 18, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Well, surely Paul doesn't have in mind a civil disagreement. The word warfare and the verb preceding it to wage comes from the Greek word stratueo, from which we get our English word strategy. It means campaign. It's not a quick guerrilla battle. It's not a one-and-done deal. Paul is using a verb there in the Greek to help us to understand, the reader to understand, Timothy to understand, that what he is calling Timothy to, and by extension, all of us here in this room, is a drawn-out, prolonged conflict with a spiritual enemy. He uses a word that is better translated as campaign, best translated as war. It is something that must be fought towards an ultimate victory not fought until we come to a place of happy equilibrium and then we can pick up our arms and deceive ourselves into thinking that all is well. No, no, that is not the idea that Paul is getting at here. Wage the good warfare. If we do not understand that we are at war, we make a very critical, critical mistake. On September 11th, 2001, 19 Islamic jihadist terrorists boarded four airplanes and successfully murdered over 3,500 American citizens. President Bush went on national TV that evening and said, Today our nation saw evil. But it's important to remember that Al-Qaeda, under the leadership of Osama bin Laden, had declared war on the United States all the way back at the beginning of 1990. The United States may not have considered itself at war, but Osama bin Laden did. The United States may not have perceived the threat that was presented, but you can rest assured that Al-Qaeda was working diligently and deliberately using any and all means available to them in order to hurt Americans. And the same mistake, I think, is often perpetuated in churches today. That following Jesus is about blessings and happiness and joy, which it is. But it is important to recognize that as we follow Christ, we live in a world that is hostile to everything that has to do with Jesus. And would like nothing better than to convince all of us in this room that they mean us no harm, that we can get along, we can coexist in order to silence our witness. 
in order to hush our evangelism. Paul's statement to Timothy here is, you are in a war, you have a charge, you have a duty, it's time to fight. Which begs the question, that how are we to fight? Notice the instruction that Paul gives here to Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. An interesting expression here. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them, referencing the prophecies, you may wage the good warfare. If we are willing to agree that we are in a state of war, the question is, how then are we to fight the war? The answer is, by the prophecies that have been given to us. Now, in the first century, undoubtedly, there were There was prophecy that was still coming forth from God. There was revelation that was still being given. The canon of Scripture, the New Testament in particular, was still being revealed from heaven. We do not yet have a closed canon. The church is a fledgling organization, a fledgling institution that is still widely understood as being nothing more than perhaps a sect or a deviation from Judaism. Indeed, within Judaism, you have the Pharisees and all the religious establishments, Sanhedrin, that are pointing to these followers of Jesus and essentially calling them Jewish heretics, individuals who've departed from the true Jewish teaching and Rome is viewing this as sort of an interfaith squabble between these two different groups. In the midst of all of this, you still have scripture that is being compiled. You still have Paul writing his letters, including 1 Timothy. You still have Peter and all these guys, the Apostle John. And so in the midst of all of this, prophecy is still forthcoming. One of the questions that we sometimes are asked today, when a man is called to pastoral ministry, Ought there to be prophecy that is prophesied over him when he is ordained? Because that seems to be the direct, uh, the direct concern of what Paul says here. He makes the statement, Timothy, my true child, according to the prophecies previously made about you, wage war. And so as you're reading this Bible, you need to understand that as Timothy was called and appointed to the pastoral ministry to assist the Apostle Paul, Paul here undoubtedly is alluding to the fact that there were prophecies which were given, which spoke of Timothy, and that Timothy was called not to dismiss those things, not to set those things aside, but to know them and to understand them, to remember them, and that by whatever those prophecies said, that was how he was to wage his warfare. Now, I want to emphasize to all of you this morning that when Paul says to Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, he is undoubtedly talking about direct prophecy that was given at the time of Timothy's ordination. But that is not necessarily the end of understanding this verse. The Greek construction here is an interesting one. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. And it makes the statement, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. And he says there, in in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. The the Greek word here is an interesting construction. It's from proago, and then there's another preposition, epi. And this word proago, it comes from the Greek word ago. I'm looking around for Ariana. Okay, well, there's Danielle. Ago, let's do it. Oh, no, she's ducking down now. <laughs> In my Greek class, we just learned this Greek verb. Uh, she's a little shy. That's okay. I'll give the answer on her behalf. Ago, I lead. And we haven't learned this yet, but pros is the, prep, is the prefix in the front of this word. Pros means toward. 
So the Greek word proago is leading towards something. And then the preposition, which don't worry, Danielle, I'm not going to call on you. The Greek preposition epi means upon. So literally what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy regarding Timothy, he's saying in accordance with, one, one way to translate that expression is in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. The literal rendering of that expression is Timothy in accordance with the prophecies which led to and upon you wage the good warfare. Paul is employing this understanding of prophecy, which it's kind of a difficult way to render the verse. And indeed, many of your translations will render it just exactly as I've read it to you here in accordance with the prophecies which were made about you. If you have an old King James translation, they try to draw out the the sort of difficulty of that expression. But the idea isn't necessarily there were prophecies which were made about Timothy, although you could say that they were made about Timothy. The idea is that there were prophecies which, when they were understood, helped guide and inform the church regarding whom they should be looking for to be a pastor. Prophecies which were given, which led the church to discerning and understanding that Timothy was indeed called to be a pastor. Now, again, if you read through the book of Acts, you're going to find, particularly in Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch, when they set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work to which they were called, you'll find that the Holy Spirit is there talking to the church, and the church recognizes by act of prophecy that they need to set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work which the Holy Spirit has set them apart for. So I want to be very careful to say that absolutely, absolutely, in the first century, God was still speaking, the Spirit was moving Revelation was coming. The canon of Scripture had not been closed. But, and it's definitely possible that this type of prophecy was at hand when Timothy was ordained. But it is also possible that Paul is referencing other Scriptures which led the church to settle upon Timothy as being appointed for pastoral ministry based on a literal rendering of this Greek expression. So, do we have any examples of this, though, within the Scriptures? Indeed, we do. I want you to flip with me, go backwards to the book of Acts, and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 13. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is out doing his thing. Um, He's preaching the uh, gospel in uh, Pisidia, the region of Pisidia, and as was his custom, we're going to pick it up in verse 44, Acts 13, 44. As was Paul's custom, he started preaching to the Jews in the synagogue, The Jews typically didn't like that very much. They would reject Paul. Hopefully it stayed peaceful, but sometimes it got violent. And then after being rejected by the Jews, Paul would then turn to the Gentiles and start proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. And we see this happening here in Pisidia. In verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Fair enough. Could have stopped right there. Hey, you guys don't want the gospel? You don't want to be saved? Fine. We're out of here. We're going to go tell somebody who's actually interested in what we have to say. But notice what Paul says next. And this is what I want to draw your attention to. Verse 47 They make this statement, you don't want it, fine, we're going to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, 
quote, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, what Paul is saying there is he's saying, you know what, I have scriptural prophecy guiding me. I have a decision to make about ministry. You don't want the gospel? Fine. God has commanded me to take the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and to give it to some people, the Gentiles namely. He has even specifically said this in his word, I have appointed you as a light unto the Gentiles. Now, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. When Paul was ordained to the ministry, when Paul was saved on the road to Damascus and appointed to be the apostle to the Gentiles, as he refers to himself, was Isaiah there prophesying to Paul? No, he wasn't. Isaiah's been dead 500 years now. He is long gone. And yet Paul sees direction and validation for his ministry in a prophecy given 500 years prior, which led to and upon the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Indeed, let us turn to Isaiah and just consider what the prophet Isaiah is saying there. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 49 and verse 6, but we're not going to pick it up in verse 6. Flip back to Isaiah 49, and we're going to pick it up in verse 5. While you're flipping, I'm going to take this opportunity to give my throat a rest. I love the sound of pages. Best sound ever. It's a slowly dying sound with the advent of digital technology. And when it's extinct, I will cry. But for now, it's a beautiful sound. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has become my strength. Verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing or too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and rise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Now within that passage, we see a prophecy which is mentioning a lot of different things the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel. Well, who is this a reference to? It is almost guaranteed, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, it is absolutely a reference to Jesus. It's not a reference to Paul. It's not talking about the Apostle Paul. It's talking about Jesus. And it says regarding Jesus that Jesus, it's too small a thing for my Holy One, for my servant, to just save the nation of Israel, the preserved, the remnant among Israel, No, no, no. More than that, Jesus is going to be a light to all the nations, the whole world. Within the ministry of Christ, how many times did he leave the land of Palestine to carry the gospel to the Gentiles? You can count it on the fingers of one hand. You don't even need any fingers. You're all sitting there staring at me. Nobody's raising a hand. That's good. That's the right answer. 
He never once left the nation of Israel. He never once left Palestine. He never once took the gospel to the nations. There were Gentiles, yes, who came to him during his ministry. Yes, absolutely, he held forth the gospel to those Gentiles with whom he came into contact. But Luke makes this interesting, interesting comment. In Acts chapter 1, Luke says, Oh, Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, in the first book I dealt with all that Jesus began to do. And now, the implication being, although Luke doesn't explicitly say this, it's quite obvious, moving forward, I'm going to deal with all that Jesus continues to do. Except the main characters of the story now are not Jesus and the Twelve. The story more or less focuses in on a handful of individuals, two prominent ones in, among those, namely Peter and Paul. And it traces the movement of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, from Jerusalem to Samaria, to the end of Palestine and the uttermost ends of the earth, which is exactly what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says to the disciples, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This was what Jesus began, and the book of Acts is what Jesus continues. And we see here that as Paul is doing his ministry in Acts chapter 13, follow me all the way through, he sees that Jesus is the one taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But he sees himself as being the servant of the Lord Jesus. Paul sees himself as being in Christ. And therefore his efforts, his ministry, is a service to Christ in which Christ is working through Paul to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to be a light to the nations. You say, okay, I'm with you so far, I'm with you so far. Coming back to 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, wage the good war, fight the good war in agreement with or in accordance with the prophecies which led up to and are upon you. Literal meaning of the Greek. This means both the prophecies, which almost certainly were given at the moment of his call, but it involves all of the prophecies that led up to this moment in the life of the church in which Timothy was called. What Paul is saying is, in accordance with all of Scripture, in accordance with every word that comes out of God's mouth. By those words which God speaks, fight the good fight. And indeed, there are a number of scriptures. The word shepherd is often used to describe the pastoral work. If you do a concordance search, you will find the word shepherd is used quite a bit in the Old Testament. Indeed, the two books in the Old Testament which use the word shepherd the most, the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel, and when you go to look at those passages that talk about shepherds, undoubtedly they are talking about pastors that are going to be given by the Lord in the New Testament era to serve his flock. And of course, the great shepherd, which Peter clearly identifies in 1 Peter chapter 5, the chief shepherd himself is Jesus Christ. Which means that all the under-shepherds, as Peter calls them in 1 Peter chapter 5, 
all the under shepherds serve as an extension of the chief shepherd. So in the same way that Paul is calling Timothy to fight the good war in agreement with all of the scripture and all of the prophecies that have led up to and are upon Timothy, this is what Paul is calling you and me to do today. We've covered some ground, did some exegetical footwork. I hope you're still with me. But essentially what Paul is saying, First Baptist Church, is this. You are called to fight a war. First, you need to know that you are fighting a war, that there are hostilities, that we are engaged in spiritual conflict. Number two, how do you fight that war? You fight that war in agreement with Scripture and the Word of God. That is exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, this will involve two responsibilities. He makes the statement, let's go back to 1 Timothy. Go ahead and flip back to 1 Timothy. Let me hear that beautiful sound. Go ahead. I like it. While you're flipping, I'm going to go ahead and warm up my throat. Coming back to 1 Timothy, he says, This charge, this military duty, this command I give to you, Timothy, I entrust it to you, that in accordance with the prophecies leading up to and concerning you or about you or are upon you, you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, those two expressions, holding faith and a good conscience, and this charge, we've already seen that in 1 Timothy. We saw that in the previous passage. You'll recall in verse 3, he says, this charge I entrust to you. He doesn't say that. He says, I remain in Ephesus as I urged you in order that you may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine, not to have any other teaching. So one of our responsibilities as we fight this spiritual war is to make sure that the teaching which is taught is only the correct teaching. One of the responsibilities you have sitting there as a church member here at First Baptist Church is to make sure that only biblical preaching and only solid scriptural doctrine is being offered from the pulpit. And if there are individuals who are deviating from that, you are called to recognize that deviation. You are called to confront that deviation. Oh, that's negative. We don't like to be told that there's a confrontation that we're involved with We don't like to be told that we have a responsibility in order to listen carefully and to make sure that the things we're being taught are grounded in Scripture. And in terms of going and talking to someone, we don't want to do that either. That's only half of it. The second half of it, of course, is to go on living your Christian life in obedience to the correct teaching. So responsibility number one, according to 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, you're to keep the heretics out to keep the false teaching out. That's responsibility number one to waging the good war. Responsibility number two to waging the good war is to have the good teaching in, to have the correct teaching in because your whole life has to be built off of correct teaching. You know, when my daughter was younger, she had a love of horses. She still does. She's looking at me now. She's like, yeah, I love, I love horses. <clears throat> We, we lived in Raleigh, and there was a, when, we, when she was younger, we rented a house in Raleigh, and there was a, a, a property behind our house, a larger property, and they had horses there. And so we would always go to the back fence, not always, but on a regular basis, and feed carrots and apples and things like this to this horse. 
the owner never complained. We never asked permission. I'm just thinking about that right now. I don't know if that was a good thing for the diet of the animal, but nonetheless, that's what happened. My daughter loves horses. To this day, she wants me to buy her a horse and to put it in my backyard so she can go out and ride it. Of course, that's never going to happen, but she loves horses. And on a regular basis, driving down the road, we would drive past fields. And, and you all know Kamloops is a bit of a ranching community. There are farmers around here that keep their cows. And so on a very regular basis, we'd be zipping down Highway 1. And Chloe, when she was younger, two, three years old, she'd look out the window and she would see a cow. And she'd say, look, Daddy, horse. Now, if I'm going to follow the polite way of the typical Canadian, I will not confront that mistake. I will say something agreeable, like, well, that's certainly a possibility. <laughs> You're laughing, and I'm glad. We've had 50 years of government funding going to public education and students graduating high school that have a hard time identifying geog geographically where the Canadian Rockies are. We've had nearly 30 years of sex ed going on in the public education system. And now, starting this year, we're going to have students graduating who are going to have a hard time, after 30 years of sex education, identifying the difference between boys and girls. You see the problem. You see the difficulty. The result of this is that with this teaching that's being presented that confuses, that makes these categorical mistakes, we don't know really what a boy is and we don't know really what a girl is since we confuse the two and think that they're interchangeable. And the end result of that is we know little to nothing about either one. The dumbing down of these things dumbs us down. The truth is easily presented with my daughter and her category mistake between cows and horses. Now, the reason she's making that categorical mistake is because cows look similar to horses. They got four legs. They stand on all four. They got a neck. That's really about the end of it, if you ask my opinion. But to a young mind, untrained in visual identification, well, that's basically the same thing. The sophistication and the nuance in order to determine the exact difference between those things requires two things. Confrontation. No, dear. No. That is wrong. That is not a horse. That is a cow. Horses move much faster. Horses are much more graceful. Horses weigh slightly less. A horse looks like this, and a cow looks like that. The assumption that you are making that the two are the same is wrong. That idea has to be challenged and confronted for the purposes of helping the child to see the real difference. For the further purpose of helping the child to know the true beauty, the majesty, and the grace of each animal as they truly are. If we allow heretical teaching within the church, 
If we allow this superfluous of competing ideas, some of which are patently false and totally wrong, it is not an act of grace. It is not an act of kindness. And it does not help anyone come to appreciate the true beauty and majesty and splendor and holiness of God Almighty. It further distorts. It further twists. It ultimately confuses and it breaks down our relationship. You want to fight a good fight? You want to fight a good war? Listen to me and listen carefully. There's no getting around it and there's no escaping it. You are called by, Tim, by Paul in this letter to Timothy to know the truth, to know true scripture, to know the prophecies which have come to us, the church, which have been given. Because knowing those is how you fight the good fight. And fighting the good fight involves charging certain people not to teach any different doctrine. Church, amen. I hope you mean it. I hope you mean it. Because my observation has been, I say this because I love you, that the average Canadian is very polite, but allows politeness to be an excuse to continue to allow the peddling of falsehood. We all just want to amicably agree to disagree. As you're reading Paul here in 1 Timothy, there is no agreeing to disagree. There's a full recognition of disagreement followed by the charge, those of you who are wrong will be silenced. Do you see that? Read it to you again. Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Stay there, Timothy. Stay put because you have a job to do that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. We're not to be permitting this category mistake between cows and horses on a very juvenile level, but on a much more serious level, we're not to be allowing any distortion of the truth of Scripture because it really distorts our understanding of who Jesus is. It distorts our understanding of the gospel, and it distorts our understanding of how to get saved, how to go to heaven. It destroys faith. So we're called to confront that. So what happens, Pastor Josh, if I... What happens if I don't confront it? What if I don't fight this fight? What if I just sit on the pew and come in here every Sunday and don't listen with the idea and the intention of going out and sharing this gospel with my neighbors and challenging the distortions which are keeping them from heaven? Can I do that? Is that possible? Look at what Timothy says. Uh, Sorry, Paul says to Timothy, verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Conscience is when you know you're supposed to do something and then you don't do it, and that little thing starts poking you and saying, hey, you're doing wrong. Well, I've just preached to you a sermon that says, hey, this is what you got to do according to the word of God, which means if you don't do it, that little conscience is going to start poking you. And if you reject a good conscience, guess what comes next? Sooner or later, it impacts your faith. It impacts your ability to walk with God. And look at the metaphor, look at the imagery that Paul uses to describe what the outcome of that is. 
He says, rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, a shipwreck in this day and age is a horrifying thing. This is in a day and age in which we have life preserver jackets, GBS warning beacons, all kinds of safety equipment. On a number of occasions, I've invited quite a few of you out on my boat, and you're all asking questions. Is it safe? Is there life jackets on board? Do you have a bullhorn to sound? Is there an emergency beacon? And yes, all of those things. In addition to fire extinguishers and paddles and all this stuff, nobody's more concerned about getting stuck in the middle of a shoe swap than me. It's a true statement. Now, it's a shoe swap. Could I swim to the shore? You know, I sit at a desk all day, and... Uh, I'm not in the greatest athletic physical shape. Let's just be honest, okay? But if it really mattered, maybe I could probably swim to shore. With my kids, I don't know. I don't know if I could swim my kids to shore. But why would I risk it? Let's just have life jackets. That makes everything better. In this day and age, they're, they're sailing across the Mediterranean. There are no life jackets. There is no emergency distress beacon. There's no Coast Guard that's going to come and rescue you if you go down. A shipwreck is the most horrifying thing that you could possibly encounter. It is the most horrifying experience that you would ever experience because you would know with a certainty that your life was ending as the ship slowly went down below the waves. You would know your time was done. If you're in the middle of the Mediterranean, no one's coming. You're not going to swim far enough. It's over. And you have the horror of knowing that as you are dying. Paul's statement here to Timothy is by rejecting fighting the war, by rejecting a good conscience, by rejecting a sincere faith, people have shipwrecked themselves. The result is, if we do not stand up for what we believe, is that all too often we are influenced and convinced by the world to believe what they believe. If we do not stand for biblical truth, Sooner or later, we're sitting pat and happy with the falsehoods of the enemy. That guy who is fighting a war against us wants nothing more than for us to sit quiet. You don't have to fight the fight. You don't have to stand for biblical truth. You absolutely can surrender in the face of a murderous enemy who has no intention of taking prisoners. You can do that. And the result is that you will perish. That's the metaphor that Paul is using. I want to give you guys something positive to dwell on before we close today. The opposite of being silent is being vocal. If you would share your faith, there's tremendous joy and blessing there for you. Ten years ago when I first moved to Canada... I was invited to a home up in Logan Lake. Two dear, sweet people who I am still very close friends with to this very day, Tyson and Charlene Van Dien. And Tyson is completely okay with me sharing this story. I've shared it before. They invited me up because they wanted to hear the gospel. They wanted to hear what this whole Christian thing was all about. Charlene already had a faith with the Lord. She was very new in her faith. But she wasn't confident enough to explain it to her husband. This is where I was introduced into the situation. And so I went up to Logan Lake to visit with these friends. They actually were talking about wanting to start a Bible study in their home in order to learn more about Christianity. The thinking was our, Canada, our, our nation, our country, Canada, was built on Christian ideas and 
it seemed to work out pretty good back in those days, so we should probably learn a thing or two about it. That was more or less the thinking. So I sat down, and I began to share the gospel. It was very clear. Tyson, he was on the fence. He wasn't sure about any of these things. And so I began to pre- present to him the whole counsel of God's word. It's not that there is a God in heaven who loves you and wants to perform like a magic genie or a special Santa Claus. It's that there's a powerful God in heaven who can give you all the desires of your heart, but he is a holy and awesome God, and you have offended and sinned against him. I began to present that gospel message to him, and throughout my presentation, he very clearly started to get agitated. And I was being as gentle and as gracious as I possibly could. You can ask Charlene, you can ask Tyson to this day. I was soft-selling this thing. I was like, no, 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 like you have sinned against God. You, you do need to be forgiven, but he wants to forgive you. You know, I, I make the statement that I'm immediately jumping onto the goods. You have done wrong, but don't worry. God wants to forgive you. I was, you know, I was trying to make this thing as comfortable and as palatable as I possibly could while still holding to biblical truth. Even doing that, he started to get very, very irritated. And I could tell he was getting irritated. I would find out later, he stood up at one point and he said, you know what, that makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. That makes me very angry. And he was very calm and collected when he said that. But I could tell he was upset. Later on I found out he told his wife, his wife later told me that he was about two seconds away from just decking me in the face. (laughs) Now I knew it was an uncomfortable situation I was doing my best to make the gospel as attractive as I could, but I was trying to be fair to the Word of God. And that's our fear. If we're true to the Scriptures, and if we stand up for what we know is right, we're going to get punched. Sometimes you will. Symbolically as well as potentially literally. But over the next three months, I had the amazing privilege as I ran a Bible study in the home of this guy who agreed to have me back for a second go. I had the amazing privilege of watching Jesus soften his heart and work in his life. And I had the amazing joy of baptizing him about three months later. Listen, I've seen power. I've seen the supernatural. I've seen it when a hardened sinner who does not want anything to do with God repents of his sins and comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing more affirming, there is nothing more solidifying than standing on the truth of the gospel. Church, we're called to fight a fight. We are called to wage a war. It will be costly and it will hurt. But it is beautiful if we would honor the Lord in it. My hope and my prayer for you is that you would fight. Let's bow. Lord, help us to be faithful to fight the war that you have called us to fight. Help us to be faithful to stand up for the truth of your word. God, help us to proclaim and stand upon the gospel. Father, we thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die, to forgive us of our sins, to take our penalty upon himself in order that we might receive mercy. God, help us to exult in that mercy and to lift high that name which all the world needs to hear.
We ask these things in Jesus' name.